Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you Take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to be considering verses 31 through 38 this morning. I want to uh, point out to you that you've got two handouts. You've got your typical uh, outline uh, notes handout. And then there is this page with the colorful graph on the front of it. Uh, we're not exactly preaching this today. Uh, this goes hand in hand with what we are preaching. I was well into getting uh, ready for this, uh, this 
uh, message and in my preparation when this arrived in an email, I believe it was Friday uh, when I got this, and I was just a little taken aback by the, the numbers, um, and actually I believe this was produced in 2017 or 2018, so the numbers are probably worse than they even appear on this page, um, but I would direct your attention to two things on this handout, and then you can look at it later. Uh, the first, the, the title, why don't, why don't We Have Enough Laborers? And then if you'll notice the graph, this is worldwide, over all of the world, only 33% are called Christian or considered within Christianity. I suppose we call that Christendom. Um, but if you'll notice, that number includes Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, Pentecostal, Anglican, not exactly sure what that one right there is, Latter-day Saints, um, Jehovah's Witnesses. In other words, a number of things that most Christians would not consider Christian. And yet there's still only 33% of the world's population considered to fit under that huge, all-encompassing umbrella that they call Christianity. Um, if you'll go through this this week and consider the, the different topics and the verses provided uh, to lead you through the scriptures, I believe you'll find this stirring or compelling or convicting. It was all three of those things for me. So uh, now we'll turn to our scriptures. John chapter 4. And if you will, uh, we'll stand together in respect of the reading of God's word so we can get directly into the sermon. John chapter 4, we are picking up in verse 31. Uh, just for context, you will remember that uh, the lady of Samaria has come out. She has met with Christ. There has been a conversation uh, she has discovered that he is the Messiah and she has left her water pot and gone back into town to tell everybody that he's out here. And that's where we pick up in verse 31. In the meanwhile, while she's gone into Samaria, his disciples prayed him or urged him saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye that there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you're entered into their labor. 
I want to take this passage this morning and give you some, some uh, specific, uh, what does it mean, what does the conversation mean, but I also want us to consider this question as a church, as the body of Christ, how can we experience a great harvest? How can we experience a great harvest? And it's my belief that the answer is in this passage that we're reading here. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer? Ask Him to speak to you. Ask Him to challenge you. Pray for me as I pray for you. Father, we thank You for yet another opportunity to come together to worship, uh, not only in song, but in word. Father, as we come to that portion of the service where we have enjoyed and been stirred by the song service, we now come to that part where we open the word and we worship in word. Father, I pray that as we do that, that you would, through your blessed Holy Spirit, guide us and lead us, that you would illuminate for us this passage, give us understanding that we've not held before. Father, I pray that as we uh, listen this morning, that we will be challenged, that we will be convicted, that we will be charged. Lord, maybe there's one here this morning that will be converted just from hearing the Word of God. Lord, we know that can happen. Father, we pray that it would happen. Lord, I pray as we look through this passage that we each individually would seek personal application so that this time spent together would indeed be profitable to the Spirit that is within. Lord, I pray that we would walk accordingly as we depart. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you are like me, you've asked this question before. Uh, you have, at some point in your uh, spiritual walk, in your church walk, ask yourself, how can we experience uh, a great harvest? You may not use that word. You may have, you may have um, used the word in the past, a great revival. Uh, that's what we've come to associate revival with. We've come to associate the idea of a revival as that, that specific point in the church year that we all come together and we bring in uh, some higher profile, uh, different angled, better perspective preacher to preach in such a way as to convict those that we've not yet convicted of their sins. And there's a great move of the Spirit and people are born again. Uh, that really is not the intention of revival. Revival is for the body of Christ. It's for the believer. It is to remind and to edify and to encourage and to recharge and, and to repurpose that believer who has fallen by the wayside so that others without the body of Christ can be reached by those within the body of Christ. So, but you've thought it before. You've thought to yourself, how could we have a great revival? How could we have a great harvest? How could we have a, a great awakening? And I want to address this, this small elephant in the room just in case you would say to me, well, you know, honestly, preacher, I've never thought about that. Uh, I don't want to be 
condescending, nor do I want to be convictional from my own position, but if you were to tell me that you've never thought about whether or not, or the methods of, or the opportunities of a great awakening, or a great revival, or a great harvest, I would say to you that I have concerns about your spiritual well-being. Because every example that we're given in the New Testament of a born-again believer, every single example that we're given, there is this irresistible, almost overwhelming desire to tell others about the experience so that those people can have the experience for themselves. Even, even if we disconnect it from uh, the book of Acts and beyond, where we would be seeing the born-again, quote-unquote, born-again Christians that are like unto us, uh, spirit-filled and born-again, uh, even if we were to look at uh, the, the healings, those, the lepers, the blind, the lame, uh, the crippled, and we would consider what was the motivation behind those healings, uh, we would first come to the conclusion that none of those healings were done for the sake of the healing. I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that there's never been a blind person that Christ touched and give them their sight back for the purpose of giving them their sight back. There was never a crippled hand that was made whole for the sake of having that hand back. There were never paralytic legs that were energized to walk for the sake of walking. They were all examples. They were all examples of a healing. The blind is an example of that person who is lost and in the dark and can't see the spiritual truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ being touched by the Holy Spirit of God and their eyes open so they can see the truth and therein believe and follow by faith. The paralytic legs are the example of that person who is captured in their sin, unable to provide for themselves and help themselves, whom the Holy Spirit of God is touched and blessed by the preaching and the teaching of God's Word and given them legs that they can not only support themselves with, but carry the gospel abroad with. And you can do that with every single one of those healings. That's what those healings were about and from that perspective every single healing if you look at it those people would leave that healing and publish the good news of that healing even when the Lord Jesus Christ said go and tell no one they would go and tell everyone so we are established from a, a typological perspective and a truth perspective that a born-again believer wants to see other people become born-again believers. There's something special has happened and they want to tell other people about it. So I'm confident we all agree that we've all asked the question in the past. How could we experience a great harvest? And it, if we were... To see those pictures and realize that they are pictures of spiritual resurrection that occurs from an encounter with the Savior. That's what happens in our life when we're saved. Paul would say we're dead and trespasses is in, but he quickened us and made us alive again. If we were to see that, then we would, we would assume, we would, we would suppose that we would be telling everyone and hoping that everyone would experience the same thing. 
And if you agree that sometimes you've asked, what would it take? How could we experience a great harvest? And if you have been paying any attention at all to the direction of the world and society and unfortunately the church proper, uh, the question has become more regular. How can we see more converts? How could we see more folks recognize their need? How could we experience a great harvest of souls? And I believe the keys are in this passage between Christ and these disciples. Because that's specifically what he's speaking about. Notice in verses 31 through 34, I'm going to read through them again and and I may uh, just give a little commentary as we go. In the meanwhile, while the disciples, uh, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. But he saith unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore his disciples said to one another, has somebody brought him something to eat? Has anybody fed him? Has he eaten something that we don't know about? Did, did this occur and we weren't here to see it? Completely physical, completely carnal thinking. And then he would say to them, my meat, that is my work, my, my sustenance, my satisfaction comes in doing the will of him that sent me and finishing that work. And then he would say, do you guys not uh, say that it's four months and then the harvest. I would say you the harvest is here. You need to look. I want you to notice first that there's this idea of a spiritual focus. If, if we would experience a great harvest, we must possess a spiritual focus. If we think about this woman that came to the well, she was completely carnally motivated in coming for the water. The entire conversation had a carnal, uh, a carnal representation until she met the master. When he said, I'm he, and she recognized that he was the Messiah, it became, it became a spiritual conversation. Well, in this part of the narrative, the disciples are guilty of a similar thinking And their problem is not that they lack the spiritual ability to think spiritually because we would view them as born-again believers. The problem is that they uh, they, they are using, rather than their spiritual mind, their carnal mind. And they're lacking a spiritual focus. This is not the first time the disciples did this. Or I should say it's not the only time. I don't know about chronology. You remember the other time they were in the boat and the Lord said to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they all said amongst each other, we forgot to get bread. You remember that? And the Lord said, were you not with me just now when I fed these 5,000 plus with those few loaves and those fishes? This is not about bread. This is about the doctrine of the Pharisees. It's leaven and it leavens the whole lump and you have to beware of it. They they were continually struggling with this idea of a spiritual focus versus a carnal or a physical focus. The Lord here is, is, they're focused on the body and the food and the water to sustain it. And the Lord is living in the truth of Deuteronomy chapter 3 where it says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. He's living that out in front of them. 
I, I want you to know something. This is not a disciples of Christ problem. This is a, something that I am absolutely certain is a common problem amongst believers. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, uh, demonstrate it for you all. And I did this in the earlier service and it was quite revealing. And I want you to know something. I want you to not feel too terribly bad when it lands in your lap because it landed in all of their laps and it's been in my lap all week. If you came to church this morning, the conversations that you had in route, the conversations that you had in the hallway before Sunday school started, possibly in Sunday school, the conversation you had after Sunday school, before the church service started, the conversation that you will have as you get prepared to leave, in the parking lot, and around the dinner table with your family and friends. If that conversation is about anything other than spiritual implications, you are guilty of the very same thing that the disciples are guilty of here. You would think that when we come to church, I'm giving you a, a Norman Rockwell view of how it ought to be to come to church, okay? So I'm not telling you it's this way for me. I'm telling you it ought to be this way for me. Yeah. It ought to be this way for every believer. You would think that when we get up on the Lord's Day, the first thing we would think about is how, what great thing is God going to do in church this morning? And, and we would get ready and be getting dressed thinking about the great things that God is going to do in church and, and the great spiritual implications of the day and what is God going to do in my life and what is the Lord going to show me this morning and, and we would come to church and, and as we filtered into the church there would be a hallway full of other people that woke up that morning thinking about it's a great day to be in the Lord's house and what spiritual implication is going to be occurring today and the conversation would ensue about that great spiritual implication and and we would come into Sunday school and Sunday school would stoke the flame of that great spiritual implication and then we would come into the worship service and the music would swell and our hearts would bust open uh, with that great spiritual implication and then the preacher would get up and open the word of God and that great spiritual implication would come to life. That's what you would think. But what happens is we get up in the morning and the coffee didn't go right and I didn't have time for breakfast and the kids wouldn't get dressed and my wife is badgering me about wearing a tie and that never happens at my house. And, uh, uh, you know, the traffic was hard on the way in. And then we get here, and the first thing we do is we find our best buddy, and we talk about uh, that football game yesterday or that hunting expedition this last week or the problems at home or, or we talk about the truck we're going to buy or the bike we're looking at. Or, and, and we have those conversations, and then we realize, oh, it's time for Sunday school. I better get in there real quick. And we run in and we throw ourselves down in Sunday school, we're absolutely, completely, totally unprepared for a spiritual conversation. Amen. And it continues all morning long. 
And then we compound the problem when church is over because no matter how stiff, how difficult, how pointed the message was, it doesn't matter if we're in the altar weeping. As soon as we get outside, we say, are you going to watch the birds this afternoon? Hey man, what are you, where are y'all going to eat? And we begin having those same carnal conversations again. Every one of us. That's exactly what is displayed here in the disciples. They're having that, that carnal conversation. And, and you would think that, that, that for just a little bit of time on Sunday, that, that we could have a, 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 a spiritual focus just during the duration of the, of the morning service or, man, really stretch it for the Lord's day but we're incapable of doing that. We don't do that. And then compound that issue by extrapolating it over seven days. And how much colder does it get until it just continues to compound and compound and compound and compound and there's no spiritual focus and then we come together and we wring our hands and we say, why can't we have a great harvest. Well, there's no spiritual focus. And the Lord says here, and, and let me hit one more before I leave there. That, that was all hard enough, but what, what about those professing Christians who don't go to church for weeks or, or months on end? Do you think they have a spiritual focus? And we wonder why society and it, there's a lack of spiritual focus. The Lord says here, my meat is to do His will. That is, that is all that I desire is summed up in the accomplishment of the Father's will. I wonder when is the last time or has there ever been a moment where you could say that about yourself? All, I'm just consumed with accomplishing the Lord's will. A spiritual focus, if we want to have this harvest, there has to be, we must possess a spiritual focus. Look at verse 35, and I began reading that just a moment ago, but I'm going to read it again. Verse 35 and 36, really, uh, we're going to look at 35 first. Say not ye, there are four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. Uh, the, the point here is, if we, if we want to enjoy this harvest, we have to possess this spiritual focus. We also have to promote a steadfast outlook. I'm going to show you how the Lord is promoting a steadfast outlook in this passage. So there's, there's opinions as to why the Lord says what He says here. Uh, he, we read it in the King James Version, Say not ye, uh, but, but if you were to kind of modernize that, basically what He says is, didn't I hear you guys say that there's four months until the harvest? Is that what I heard you guys say? Or he may have said it this way. Don't you guys always say there's four months until the harvest? So he's bringing up a, a, something that is common. So in these opinions, one of them is that those disciples, as they were walking into Shechem and back out and preparing the victuals for the, the meal there for the Lord, 
that they looked out and the fields were just beginning to break through and they looked out and said, look, there's about four more months till harvest. That's very, 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 very possible. Yes, there's another opinion that maybe it was proverbial that that is something they said all the time, you know. Well, you know, it's four months between seed and harvest, you know, as, as in a patience thing, you know, you can't rush it. They're just in conversation. Another one that the Lord kind of highlighted for me this morning as I was thinking over what we're talking about today is it's also possible that they had encountered, they encountered folks all the time and they were sharing the gospel and they were sharing some of the truths that the Lord was sharing, not at the same level obviously, and maybe they had encountered some people and they were talking about the resistance to the message and maybe they said, well, you know, it's always four months between seed and harvest. It was one of those kind of things occurred. And the Lord says, didn't I hear you say it's four months before seed, between seed and harvest? Didn't I hear you say that? And then, and then he says, look on the fields. They're white already unto harvest. There's, there's a couple of, uh, of things here. One, uh, he is challenging the mindset that you can... Uh, just kind of so sparingly in weight. He's challenging that mindset and, and, and really he's referring to the fact that he just planted the seed in the woman of Samaria and it already took root and it was already going to produce fruit and that fruit was already marching itself back out to them. They just didn't know it. So that's the, the literal implication of the passage. He, he's in effect saying, look, I just sowed the seed and we're not waiting four months. It's white already under harvest. But there's also the idea of preparedness that, that we should always be seeking to, to sow the seeds of the gospel, but we should always be ready to reap as well. That, that, that we, we don't know who has sown or when they've sown. We don't know how long it's been since they've sown. And so in our daily spiritual walk, we should be constantly spreading the seed, but we also ought to be plucking the fruit. It's a continual sow and reap, sow and reap, sow and reap. And so that, that and, and, and listen, we understand in the Christian sense, it's true that you may sow fields that you never reap. But just as true, you're going to reap fields that you never sowed if you're faithful and diligent in the work the Lord has called you to. It's an absolute truth. And the other truth is if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow and then wait for that one field to produce, you're missing all of the other fields that are already producing. I, I, and I give you a, try to give you a mundane example that maybe will speak to some of us, but what if, what if Brother Jonathan called me and he said, Preacher, I saw this massive buck. First off, he wouldn't. If he saw it, he would kill it and then show it to me. But if he called me and said, I saw this massive buck. It was directly across the creek beside that third pine tree at 8.30 every morning this week. And then I decided, I'm going to go deer hunting. I'm going to go over there and sit beside that third pine tree. I'm going to get there about 8. That way I'll be a little bit early. And I'm going to kill that deer at 8.30. And all of my focus and all of my intentions were on that one deer that he 
purportedly saw at some particular time in some particular place, I'm missing all of the other action. And that's what a lot of believers do. Well, you know, I, I, I told my neighbor uh, about the Lord and I told my neighbor about church. I'm just waiting on them to respond. And uh, you're missing all the other action. And the Lord said, uh, look, it's always ready to harvest. There's this steadfast outlook. We have to have a steadfast outlook that, that motivates proactivity and, and then to others, productivity. Uh, it's, we can't just sit and wait. D.L. Moody gave the example once of an apartment building on fire that you knew women and children and, and other innocent folk were occupying. And as you were walking by, if you saw the apartment building on fire, you wouldn't just wring your hands and say, man, that place is on fire. You wouldn't just stand on the sidewalk and in a courteous voice say, hey, the building's on fire. You would rather run to the building and bang on every door you could get to and yell at the top of your lungs, get out! The building is on fire. And that's exactly the condition of those in this world and in this life who have yet to be born again. There are two eternities Two possibilities. One is in the presence of God and the other is in absolute darkness forever. In hell. And we know that is a fact. We believe that is a fact. We were motivated by that fact to place all of our faith and trust in Christ and to, to serve Him continually. Yet we don't bother to tell these other people of a truth that we believe to be absolute fact. In a literal sense, as far as this passage goes, I want to share this and we'll move to the next point. In a literal sense, I'm confident, almost as if I was there, that those disciples' backs were to Shechem. And that they were looking at the Lord, and that the Lord was looking at Shechem. And that, is, that as He said to them, did I hear you guys say it was four months until the harvest? The field behind them was overrun with Samaritans coming out to meet the man who told me all I ever did. And they just couldn't see it because they were facing the wrong direction. I'm confident of that. And so I think that's the literal application. We have to put our eyes on the field. Look at verses 36 and 37. So we, we recognize that we have to possess, we have to possess this, this uh I can't remember my own word, spiritual focus. And we have to promote this steadfast outlook. But 36 and 37, And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I think that what the Lord is teaching here is that not only do we possess this spiritual focus and, and promote this steadfast outlook, but we also have to pursue a servant's heart. We have to pursue being a sower and a reaper. You, you have to be engaged in that work. The, the very simplest uh, implication, if you will, of this entire episode... I could have read to you this morning verses 31 through 38 and then I could have said this 
and it would have been complete, I, would, I could have said to you, we should always be reaping and sowing, go in peace. That's the, that's the simplest implication. There should be a continual reaping and sowing. That, that's the, the simplest. There should never be a time. There should never be a day. There should never be a moment in our lives wherein we say, and by say I mean consciously or act, and that would be subconsciously as if we're unwilling or unable or unavailable to reap or to sow depending on the circumstances at hand. It ought to be at the forefront of a believer's mind all the time. It ought to be the first thing that we think of. There should never be a moment. That goes back to what we were talking about in the obstacles to the gospel, the idea of the, the, the obstacle of awareness. We, we can't fall into that trap. People are dying and going to hell. People are being, they're being won to false religions that claim their Christianity and in the winning of them, they're double damning them because now you not only got to tell them the truth, you got to get them to quit believing the lie. And it is because we're not pursuing them. We are not pursuing as a sower and a reaper the harvest. When the Lord stated, my will or my meat is to do the will of the Father, He was simply saying this, my entire life revolves around doing the work of the Father by the will of the Father in the way of the Father. That's what he was saying. We, we commonly say this about somebody. and uh, uh, We'll commonly say, you know, um, well, you know, when we say about kids too, but we'll say, we know, uh, um, I'll use my own boy, Carter, when he was younger. Carter loves football so much that he eats, sleeps, and breathes football. <laughs> we do that. We all do that. We all have some statement that can be made like that about us. And we put our hobbies and our habits and all these other things in that blank. And what should be in that blank is God. Corey loves God so much that he eats, breathes, and, and sleeps eats, dreams, and breathes God. Because what you're saying then is that my satisfaction, my sustenance comes in accomplishing the will of the Father. It's the same statement. The, the implication is the same. And so we would see that the first implication is that we should always be reaping and sowing. The, the second implication is this, and it's very it's equally important, to the first, but that is that there is fundamentally no difference between the reaper and the sower. He says here, uh, the reaper receives wages and gathereth fruit, so that he that reapeth and he that soweth may rejoice together. And herein is the truth saying true, one soweth and one another reapeth. There's, a, there's an equivalence between the two. One is, one is a planting, pardon the pun, and the other is plucking, but the, the plucker can't pluck without the planter planting. One has got to happen before the other can. And we ought to be capable of doing both. Sowing, because this is a field, or reaping, because this is a ripe field. And, and it and is the idea of, of that, that they're both going to uh, rejoice together. It, 
It is, it is that both are doing the work of the Lord, and so we should be doing one of those all of the time. We might could even say that sowing and reaping are the only two things to do. I don't particularly believe you could live your life in that perspective and go wrong doing it. If that was your goal, I'm sowing and reaping every day, all day, everywhere. I think pretty confident you'd be spiritually successful and, and the Lord would be pleased. In, in, we, we get this picture of sowing and reaping or this agricultural image because it's so similar to soul winning. If, if you were to think, uh, deconstruct the process of, of somebody reaping or, or somebody uh, gleaning from the fields, that agricultural work began with somebody preparing the soil. The soil had to be prepared, then someone had to sow the seed, and then someone tends the fields as they grow, someone waters, uh, someone uh, eventually reaps. But in all of that process... Only the Lord can give the increase. I want you to understand that. And, and many of you in here are, are my senior, and so I know you know that. The farmer cannot make the seed grow. The farmer can dig the soil. He can amend the soil. He can plant it at the right time. Uh, he can keep the weeds out of it. He can keep the bugs out of it. He can keep the animals out of it. But, and he can water it if it doesn't rain, but to, to, to a great extent, he's dependent upon the rain at the right time, the sun at the right time, and the Lord to make that seed produce. He can't do those things. That's probably, most likely why, back in the, in the uh, earlier days, before the industrial era in America, that's probably why America was so much closer to God, because the farmer didn't have anybody else to depend on. I mean, my dad has told me several times and, and used that example that that old farmer would hook up that old mule and all day long in the field it wouldn't be anybody but him and that mule and God. And he was completely dependent upon God. And that's how the soul winner is. For the soul winner, somebody has to prepare the soil. Somebody has to plant the seed. Somebody has to water Somebody has to attend it along the way, but, but God's the one that's going to provide the increase. We have to be prepared to receive the increase, to reap it. But you, without a spiritual focus, you'll never even see it. Without the, uh, a steadfast outlook, you'll be looking in the wrong way. Lastly, verse 38, the Lord says, I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, ye entered into their labors. Now, I, uh, of, of course, the, the literal implication here is they're going to see this reaping that he had just started. He planted the seed. It's his work, but they're going to work in that. They're going to receive that. But, but there's... Also the idea that we must practice a sincere faith. And this is how I would see that. As we travel through this life, and that's what you're doing, by the way. You're passing through. You may pass through for a long time. You may pass through for a short time. But both of them are basically short compared to eternity. This is not home. This is not eternity. Eternity is not going to be here. Your eternity is either going to be in heaven or it's going to be in hell. One or the other. You're passing through. Amen. 
And as we pass through, and we're enjoying the benefits, if we're born again, of a relationship with the Savior, we're anticipating His return, uh, and the life that we'll have with it in, his, in His presence, we also will, we will, we absolutely will, capital W-I-L-L, double underline, highlighted, bold, italicized, we will encounter many fields of harvest along the way. It will happen. Some of those fields are going to need preparation. For some of those fields, you may be the first gospel carrier they've ever met. You may be the first Christian they've ever met. And what you do in their presence, whether it be a relationship or sharing the gospel, is probably just preparing the soil for the further work. But you do that with a sincere faith that the one that comes behind you will carry the work on. Some of them are going to need attention and maintenance. You're going to sometimes share your testimony or your gospel witness with somebody and they're going to say, yeah, I've heard that before. And at that point, if they've heard it and not believed it, there's going to be obstacles to why they didn't believe it. You may come along and just take one of those obstacles out. That may be your whole lot in life is to remove that one obstacle. And then some of them that you come along, uh, they're just going to need watering. And I've heard it stated different ways, watered with the prayers of the saints, uh, watered with the love of the saint. I believe it's the same. I believe you've entered in, you enter into a person's life and you realize they've had the gospel shared with them and, and there has been some acknowledgement of that may be true, but they have yet to take root. You, you put water on that by loving on them and by sharing the love of God with them and the truth of God with them. That may be all you're doing is putting a little water on the seed. Then there are some that will need to be reaped. You've heard those stories where somebody says to another individual, hey, do you know the Lord is your personal Lord and Savior? And they start weeping. And just in a matter of moments, there's a, a salvation experience that takes place. That's because they've, they've been prepared. And they've been sown. And they've been watered. And they're ready to reap. And... If you didn't say anything to them, the fruit would still be hanging there. there. There would be no reaping take place. And the problem with leaving it hanging there is that if you leave it there too long, the enemy will come through and trample it to the ground and it won't be reaped by anyone. It'll be destroyed. But we must by faith, by faith, give them the attention they need, believing that the one that went before us and the ones that come behind us will do the same. So that means I may share the love of God and the gospel with somebody and I just planted a seed. I may share the love of God and the gospel with somebody and I just added water for nourishment. I may share the love of God and the gospel with somebody and root the fruit, uh, reap the fruit excuse me, uh, from the heart that was previously sown. But in every case, this is one only responsibility to share the love of God and the gospel with that person. That's my responsibility. Well, preacher, I share the gospel with somebody, but they probably won't get saved. That's not your responsibility. Well, preacher, I share the gospel with somebody, but they probably won't believe it. Well, that's not your responsibility. You're, 
It's never get, your responsibility is to share the love of God and the gospel with somebody. That's it. And, and if we do that in a sincere faith, I believe others will do it and that person will be reaped. So the question is how can I experience a great harvest? Well, do you have a spiritual focus? Do you dedicate yourself to the Lord? Do, do you have a steadfast outlook, always looking for an opportunity to reap, but continually sowing in the stead? Do you have a servant's heart? Do you have a sincere faith? Because in my opinion, until those things are in place, we won't reap a great harvest. Would you stand with me this morning? Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Every once in a while, there's a, there's a message that I believe, no matter what, the altar should be full. And uh, this happens to be one of those. Because I believe if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you would have a desire to do that and you would come to the altar. I believe if you're here this morning and you are born again, but you don't, you don't have these, these implements, this focus and outlook, that you would want to come down here and ask the Lord to grant that to you, to forgive you for not and give it to you so that you could be about the Father's business and about the Father's work. I would imagine that if you're here this morning and you think you have those things, you'd care enough about our church and our community and our county and our nation to come down here and pray for a great harvest. But I can't imagine any reason why you wouldn't come down and pray. I hope that the Lord motivates you to do so. Father, I pray you'd bless this time of invitation. In Jesus' name. Lord, I am. 
You're my home. 